I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Aniwa people. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. You know, I was doing the sums the other day. These last four vintages, 1920, 21, 22, we still haven't got to the to the total production of 2018 yet. So they've, they've, been, they've been pretty lean years. I'm really excited too to have a vintage when, uh, when we can pick grapes when we want to or not when we need to. <laughs> this is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Topper's Mountain Wines are single vineyard wines from close to heaven. In case you're wondering where that is, it's located in New England, in the northern slopes of New South Wales. Jan Taborski is wine manager, and owner and vigneron is Mark Kirby. They join me today to share the story, which is anything but ordinary. Hi Jan, hi Mark, thanks for joining me. G'day Shante. Hey Shante, how are you? I'm very well, thank you for making the time. Mark, the Toppers Mountain story starts in the ground around 1998. But can you share with us a little bit more about the history of New England? Viticulture reaches back as far back as kind of the first settlers in the 1800s. But a lot of people don't know as much as they should about New England. Yeah, Shante. Um, uh, wine in the region began with um, with George Wyndham from Wyndham Estate, in the hunter. And he established a big property up just north of Inverell called Bacala in the 1860s and uh, and so he brought cuttings from um from Wyndham Estate in the Hunter up and uh and established a wine industry up there and uh, and it became quite significant by the turn of the century and in terms of you know the region itself you know it is described as cool climate but also a continental kind of climate it can get really quite warm and then quite kind of cold in in winter as well what is the climate like out there um well it it is a cool climate yeah and um i mean we're a long way north but we're at 900 meters so that altitude um very much ameliorates the climate i mean toppers has never recorded a 40 degree day so um you know summer days at, at um at toppers are normally from 28 to 32 and we might get, if you had a normal year, and I don't ever remember having one of them, <laughs> but uh, if we had a, a, a normal year, it's probably uh, something like five or six days over 35 a year. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it seems to kind of get a little bit of everything in terms of, you know, weather uh, weather patterns. But, Mark, tell me a little bit about where the Toppers Mountain story begins. What made you plant a vineyard? Well, that's a that's a long story, but um, we used to be cotton growers in Moree, and we formed a in the early nineties. We were we were getting a bit sick and tired of irrigated cotton, and um, and myself and my two brothers and some friends in Moree formed a partnership, Thunderbolts Rock Partnership, and we decided that we wanted to do some stuff in horticulture, in permanent plantings, as opposed to um, you know annual cropping, which we'd been in. And the first cab off the rank was um, was 100 hectares of olives just east of Moree. And then Peter Birch, who was uh, one of the partners, is an agronomist and he flies. And so he knows where all the good bits of dirt are. And he came to his attention that Topper's Mountain was on the market. And he knew that it was a, was a basalt cap. And so we went and had a look at it and we bought it initially purely because it was good horticultural soil and we hadn't hadn't um, 
any particular inkling at that stage that we were going to get a rush of blood to the head and plant a vineyard. So you just knew it as it, it being great soil and great for some kind of agriculture, but not sure what at the time. Well, we knew it was good for, for horticulture. We knew, knew it was good for permanent plantings because, it, because of the deep red free draining soil. And uh, so, so that's what, and initially we were thinking about olives, but luckily we didn't plant any olives because we actually get too much rain and it's too cool in November when they're flowering for olives to do, when they grow fine, but you don't get much fruit. Jan, tell me a little bit about when you joined the picture. How come you decided to, you know, get involved with growing grapes uh, in New England? Oh, actually, it was total coincidence. I moved to Australia from the Czech Republic with a plan to establish uh, my career in wine and started as a, as a shop assistant in a bottle shop. Um, and I also started a wine blog, uh, thinking it would be the best way how to uh, put my nose into the trade. And it was a good step. And uh, writing one of my blogs, I met Mark and I heard that improbable and interesting story of someone growing uh, about 20 different varieties in high altitude uh, in a place nowhere near to, to other vineyards. So I definitely was curious. And uh, and uh, I met Mark uh, just to have an interview for my blog. And the interview took about five hours. We went through like 20 different wines. And I think by the end of the day, we end up working with each other. Well, that's a very successful interview, I have to say. <laughs> Let's explore a little bit about grape varieties because you are working with, I don't want to call them alternate grape varieties because I just find them to be incredibly interesting grape varieties. Um, but tell me a little bit about why the decision, Mark, to, to plant um, something that was probably a little bit different at the time. Well, interestingly, we, um, a fellow called Richard Smart gave us, gave us some um some ideas about what might work there because a lot of the history, even though there'd been a lot of grapes grown there by by Wyndham and the other guys that you know in the from the 1860s onwards, the knowledge of actually what they'd planted had disappeared because all the vineyards were gone by the by the 1950s probably, um, and so we were sort of starting from scratch as to what to plant. We spoke to Richard Smart and he had a thing called a Homer climate analysis where he looked at our climate and some various things that he thinks uh, are, the, are the, the, the major variables in viticulture. And then he goes and looks at, at uh, established wine-growing regions that are closest to, to those variables and says, well, they're growing these grapes in that place over there that they've been doing it for 200 years or 300 years or whatever. And uh, so that's probably as a good a place to start as any for you. So that's how we started, and we started off with with um, four major varieties: Tempranillo, Riesling, uh, Gewurz, and Chardonnay. And then we had the fruit salad, which was fifteen rows of of, of individual varieties that we thought were worth a shot. And it turns out over the years that really those alternate varieties, emerging varieties, whatever you like to call them, non-mainstream varieties. They sort of chose us. They were the ones that that were able to produce in the climate and handle the particular peculiarities of of, of our area, and uh, and produce excellent wines with with um you know with with the least hassle. I like that. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to to you know 
work with the varieties that that speak to you but also that are showcasing you know um you know supreme fruit in the area so at the moment you i mean you have quite a bit planted but you've got uh gewurztraminer pettimansang um nebbiolo fionnier it's actually grow marshall oh it is grow okay excellent amazing because i've seen it on on your labels i think sometimes it's just mansang and sometimes it says grow mansang doesn't it yeah, well, there's actually a story there. There's, um, uh, as, la- as best I know it, there's no Petit Marsung in Australia. It was imported by the CSIRO in the 70s and the French gave them the wrong cuttings and they were actually Gros Marsung. So everything in Australia, to the best of my knowledge, is Gros Marsung and AWRI contacted us a couple of years ago and said, uh, you guys are growing Petit, Petit Marsung? And we said, yeah, and they said, well, actually, it's not. <laughs> And, and hence that change, what they said to us was, we're happy, given that you guys have, have, have you know, not contributed to this error, we're happy for you to, to sell out the, um, you know, the, the wines you've already got bottled and labelled as Petit Marsung, but from now on, they've got to be labelled accurately. And so we just drop the, the grow off and just call them Marsung. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, in the south of France where they're kind of, you know, sporadically grown and intermixed and things like that, but it, it makes a lot of sense to just have Mansang. And to be to be fair, a lot of people in Australia aren't particularly familiar with that variety anyway. So tell me a little bit about your experience with growing that grape and maybe some of the flavour profiles you think it has. Well, it's 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 probably the one of the probably the variety that really suits the suits the site best. It is tough as old boots. I mean, it comes from Gironson where it rains all the time. Our issue is that, you know, we're a long way north of, of the the sort of delineator of, merit, of of Mediterranean climate. So we get significantly more rain in the growing season than we do in winter because we're, we're a, a, a semi-temperate climate. And so rain's a big issue for us. And so, you know, Marsung just... Fits, fits in like a glove. The, the only issue for, for us is that um, it's very high acid and we're often actually waiting for the acid to fall, not for the sugar levels to rise so we can pick it. Wow, what a what a unusual situation to be in. I don't hear that very often. I'm really glad that you said that, you know, Groman Zhang is doing so well for you because I think it is such a stellar, stunning bottle of wine and I've only seen it get better and better every year that I try it. Um, so I'm glad to hear that that's going to be around a little bit a little bit more for you. You also do um, a Hill of Dreams wine. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, well, the Hill of Dreams, well, that's really, that, that was really Yarn's baby. Why don't you tell us how that came to be, Yarn? Uh, hill of Dreams is a, kind of a little hillock uh, on the northern side of the vineyard and I think it's a beautiful piece of um of land uh, as it is a hilly it's the, the there's more gravity uh, more poor soil just walking through the vineyards and going up to the hill you can see uh, that the vines are extremely balanced the beats are in control uh, so yeah it's a beautiful piece of, of the vineyard to me a special piece of the terroir and uh originally it was a mix of um white and red varieties uh, planted there. There was Sauvignon Blanc, there was Shiraz, uh, but we 
but it's surrounded with eucalyptus trees and uh, the red varieties used to pick up for a bit of uh, mint. So uh, Mark and I decided that we'll graft over the red varieties and currently it's only planted by Y varieties, which is Sauvignon Blanc, um, Verdejo and in Green Vatlina. And um, the idea was to was kind of inspired from uh, Master Dice in Elsass, who used to uh, field blend uh, uh, his fruit from uh, his best terroirs and make just uh, basically terroir-driven wine. So we basically tried to do the same story. Uh, we do pick all the varieties at the same time, uh, ferment them with uh, together with a short... Uh, probably seven, eight, nine days long skin contact. And then we press them to, uh, to, to old oak for, and leave them for eight, 10 months. And just really want to achieve to make a site specific wine. It certainly is site specific and it's a fascinating wine to drink and think about. It's really clear to me when I look at the range from Topper's Mountains that you are um, interested and fascinated by textural whites, and that comes across really clearly. Um, I, I, I'm surprised by how um, co- complex, but also, um, I suppose, dominant those those white varieties are coming across from from the range and they just really speak to our climate and all the different foods of Australia as well and what Jan you have a particular kind of fascination with with white varieties don't you uh, yeah I do I do um that was probably 15 years ago uh, I visited a place in Austria called Wachau that it's one of the best terroirs for white varieties in the world and I was just fascinated how wine can be great. It was just just an eye-opening moment for me. And maybe since then, I have had a really soft spot for everything white. And and the more and more I'm getting experience with uh, growing and winemaking, I I really try to focus on the texture of white wines, which I I think is very interesting. And different varieties can offer different textural um, opportunities or possibilities and styles and just shame to not to look at them a little bit further in yep and i think that you're doing a fantastic job because they really do um they're so layered and so detailed and so nuanced um and your passion for those varieties really comes across it's great when you have something like field blends i think to see um the different varieties within it but then also to look at as an, an overall package as well now soils are really diverse in the range uh, can you tell me a little bit about the breakdown of the soils that you work with? Um, yeah, Shante, um, the other than the than the Hill of Dreams, the the vineyard's very consistent. Um, it's a it's a deep red um, basalt. It's very it, it, it's very like being on you know on Mount Canobolus. Same type of soil approximately the same altitude, so we're being further north, we're a little tiny bit warmer, but it's a very similar soil. They're very free draining, and um, uh, other than the Hill of Dreams, it's it's very consistent. But interestingly, we had Sav Blanc on the hill, or we have Sav Blanc on the hill, which goes into the Hill of Dreams. We also had a block of Sav Blanc on the flat, 250 metres away, 
and there was usually two weeks difference in in ripening and and um, and harvest for that for those two two Sav Blanc blocks, and they were the same clones. Wow. Well, I mean, I suppose with that kind of altitude. Yeah, it is going to have a, a really big difference, isn't it? But, you know, New England is um, probably for a lot of people still uh, a spot that they want to kind of explore and perhaps aren't for, as familiar with. What Mark, what's the community like within the region? I mean, these days you have quite a few cellar doors. You've got um, breweries. You even have, I was reading, a meadery that's there as well. You know, is tourism, um, you know, heavily relied upon within the region? Well, historically, it's not. I mean, New England's famous for f- fine wool merino sheep. That's that's you know the last hundred years where it's what it's been about. But certainly in the last twenty years, and even more so in the last you know five or six years, and and even more so since COVID, um, yeah, um, tourism is is becoming more and more important, and there are a lot of small producers of all sorts of things. Um, you know, trout, cheese, geese, eggs, wine, <laughs> all sorts of things are popping up in the region and it's great. And and we're starting to see the people moving around and into the region to, to have a look as a result. Good. I'm so glad to hear that because, like you said, you do kind of have everything you need kind of at your fingertips. Um, and I think that it's definitely a place that people should keep their eye on. And I say that, but I don't want too many people rushing out there and, and ruining it either. <laughs> Um, Jan, what is the best part of your job and what, what keeps you, you know, excited to come to work every day? Oh, I really do like what's actually coming soon and that's the vintage. Uh, I'm, in, my, in my relatively short career in wine, I have basically fully uh, made the full swing to wine since I moved to Australia, which was 20, 2016 or end of 2016. Uh, I touched uh, almost everything from direct sales, marketing, um, and finally production. And I think that production is where I feel best. And uh, if you're talking production, vintage is just just the best part of the year. It's it's, it's hectic, it's exhausting, but there's lots of adrenaline, lots of excitement, and um, lots of creativity because everything changes from day to day. One is... you need to have a plan A, plan B, plan C for everything. And I just enjoy, I just enjoy that turmoil. Though I, I wouldn't have it 12 months, 12 months of a year. <laughs> oh, careful what you wish for. Now, you have had um, some pretty challenging years, not only with COVID, but with some bushfires out that way, um, some rain events. You've had some tumultuous years, so it's good to hear that you do like the adrenaline. Uh, what uh, Mark? What are you excited about in the in the next few vintages, or or what's uh, up and coming for toppers? Well, it'll be exciting to get back to where we were in two thousand and eighteen. That'd be a good, <laughs> a very good start. Um, these, um, these, I was doing the sums the other day. These last four vintages, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, we still haven't got to the to the total production of two thousand and eighteen yet. So they've been they've been pretty lean years, um, but this vintage is is so far um, after a very wet start from you know from really February March last year all the way through to the end of October. It's been wet and cold, but 
the, the, the gods have smiled upon us and touch wood, it's dried up and warmed up and, uh, and things look really good at the moment. So I'm, I'm really excited to hopefully get a normal vintage. No, I just want to add, I'm really excited too to have a vintage when, uh, when we can pick grapes when we want to or not when we need to. Yeah, I, I feel for you guys. Definitely, because you have had some really tough years and your production is so small anyway. So it's not like you've got, you know, a few thousand tons of something else that you can throw in the mix and uh, to see you over. And I think a lot of people don't realize just, you know, that with such a small production, how, how fine you do cut it. But in terms of what you're producing, I don't think you can be doing a better job in terms of what has been going into to bottle because they really are stunning wines and I encourage everybody to, to get out there and, and check out what you're doing and, and you know, buy as much as they can because all of the wines across the board are really showstoppers and really unique. And I, and in particular, Gewürz Tramina for me um, reinvigorated me into, re, into drinking Gewürz Tramina again because I think that you have been able to encapsulate the beautiful aromatics and then you know, produce a wine that's got, like you said, lots of texture, some kind of edge work to it, some nice acidity and dryness, which just makes you want to go back. And I have to congratulate you on on how well you've done the Gewürz Traminer. Oh, thank you, Shante. <laughs> I, would, I would maybe add that uh, I've been so lucky, um, lucky and unlucky. Uh, we don't have winery at the property, at the vineyard, because it's just so isolated. It's, it's in the middle of a state for his and there's no infrastructure for any decent winemaking so uh, historically we always made our wines or share our winemaking facilities with someone else and um, currently we are uh, making our wines at uh, at La Petite Maud which is a winery in Ballandin and while I'm making my wines there uh, I'm not a trained winemaker and, and I have to I have to share a big, big thank you to these guys who, who are extremely helpful both in a with uh, equipment as well as advice and um, sharing their experience. Really, really, really great guys. Indeed. And I've been trying to hassle them to get on the podcast as well because I'm a big fan of their wines. But uh, lovely to hear that, you know, you work amongst people that share their knowledge and and support one another because these last few years have taught us, if nothing else, that that is so important. I do ask everybody what they'd like to drink if they could only drink three drinks for the rest of their life. Mark, would you like to kick us off with if you could only drink three alcoholic beverages, what would they be and why? It's a difficult question and um, I've really enjoyed having, having a bit of a think about it. And, uh, and, um, and the, I initially said coffee and then I said, but yeah, but I'm, I'm sort of, you know, at my age, coffee starts to play with the mind a bit. Didn't worry me thirty years ago, but it does worry me a bit now. <laughs> and so, so I think the first thing would be actually I'd have to say tea because it doesn't matter how much of that I drink, I can I can still get by. So I think tea would have to be first, and uh, and and made properly uh, when I get the chance. So it's got to be made in an old New South Wales railways um, pot and. Uh, and uh, you know, etc. And but beyond that, um, I think um, wines. So definitely wines. And I've I've heard a lot of your guys that you've interviewed talking about um, uh, you know particular wines that they like. But I'm I'm going to say that it doesn't really matter what sort of wine it is. And what I really enjoy about wine is is you know the the 
places you go and the people you meet. And so my cell is really a reflection on the places I've been and the, and the people I've met. And so it's just a, a wine that, you know, that you've got some story to, you know, some of the history of, you know, who's, who's behind it. And, uh, in, and you can, you can think about those aspects. And so really it doesn't matter what sort of wine it is, as long as it's a good one and you've got some link to it. And finally, I finally I think um, I was troubled by this one, but I think I'd have to say, although I don't drink very much of it, um, some nice whiskey, Japanese, Scottish, doesn't matter, Tasmanian, again, got a story. Very strong, and I agree with you when you say you know. Wine often or beverages link us so much to a time and a place, and sometimes you know you you they're so reminiscent, and it's something that can be shared, and it is really you know that collective experience that comes with drinking something like a nice wine and sharing it. I don't know if you want to always share a, a whiskey because uh, you know when you have a really nice whiskey, it's often few and far between. So I don't know about sharing those, but um, <laughs> three very good answers. Jan, what are you going to be drinking if you've only got three drinks? Well, I, I read the question properly, so uh, I was thinking only about alcoholic drinks. And uh, it was pretty straightforward to me. Uh, uh, one thing I would definitely like to stick with is Czech beer. Uh, apparently, thanks to my origins. Um, champagne would be second one. And uh, Nebbiolo from Barrel and Barbaresco. I can imagine my life just just having this free. <laughs> a man that no one knows what he wants. I was. I'm glad you're here to say uh, Czech beer because I really feel like you know we're not worthy because your your pilsners are ridiculous. I could wax lyrical about that all day long. Champagne. I mean, who doesn't want champagne? And then you you know you're going for the beast of Barolo and Barbaresco. So um, definitely the finer things in life you like. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark and Juan, it's been so lovely to have you on. Uh, I love your wines and what you're doing out there. I think, you know, they're quite revolutionary. They're certainly delicious. And uh, New England's in incredibly good hands with the likes of you guys. So thank you so much for making the time. I look forward to the next time I try a Topper's Mountain wine. And thank you very much for chatting with me today. Yeah, wonderful, Shantae, and um, we, we'd love to see you up there sometime not too far down the track. I will, I will definitely be stopping in. I actually have family in Coffs Harbour, so the, literally the next time I'm headed out, to, I'm going to come on and, and pick your brains if that's okay. Wonderful, love to see you. Sounds like a plan. Thank you very much, Shantae, for having us. You're very welcome. Cheers to you. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at overaglasspod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.